0: Hi, everyone. It's Rebecca. You're listening to Superwoman. Today's guest is Jessica Pels, the editor-in-chief of Cosmo. We talk about all things, the land of fashion, what inspired her to want to be in fashion and move here, and that she's not the devil wears Prada. I'll put it that way. Today's guest is Jessica Pels, the editor-in-chief of Cosmo and Cosmo.com. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're, I should insert the, that cheering like, yeah, <laughs> I, I remember Cosmo from my youth and obviously it's been, it's a historical mag. It's been around for a long time. Um, you've been there about a year and a half mm-hmm. and you took over last September, October as editor in chief of both. Mm-hmm. But before we start with the journey you're on now, I'd love to hear about your story, why you loved media, what you love about your job.
1: I was born in a log cabin on a—no, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I I never really thought I would end up in magazines, actually, to be honest, because my focus was always on— storytelling. When I was younger, I was obsessed with reading and writing, and I got really into movies when I was in, I guess it was middle school. And I did this nerdy thing where I would watch a movie, and then immediately I would watch it again with the director's commentary on. Do you remember back when DVDs existed? Yes. (laughs) And I loved the storytelling first, but then the insight into how the story got made. And so... I, as sort of a writer first, was obsessive about stories, and then I, I was a very serious ballet dancer for a long time. And that's what brought me to New York. I, when I was 14, I um, came here to study with American Ballet Theater for the summer. No big deal. <laughs> It was just the summer program, although I did take a class next to Barishnikov, which made my life. But um, the only way my conservative parents would let me stay here on my own was if I lived in a nunnery. So I did. There was plastic on all of the furniture, and the nuns cooked all the food. So all I ate was bodega mango that entire summer. Was the food bland? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, nuns indulging in,
0: like, flavors.
1: Yeah, indulge is not a word, I think, in their vocabulary. (laughs) Um, There were no boys allowed. I totally snuck a boy into the building. but um, So I was serious about ballet for a long time, and, and ballet is about storytelling, and it's about performance, and it's about evoking emotion. I got to a point when I was nearing the end of my high school time and thinking about college. And I realized that I was a good dancer, but I wasn't the best dancer. Same. (laughs) I didn't know you danced. Yeah, I was in modern. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going
0: to be Barishnikov or like any of the greats. So why bother?
1: Yes. It's such a brutally competitive world. Yeah. And if you're going to be in the corps de ballet of some tiny company no one's ever heard of, that just, I knew I was too ambitious for that. And I also knew that serious ballet dancers didn't go to college because those are critical years in your career. And I I wanted to go to college and I wanted to, I was a total nerd. And so I uh, I went to NYU and initially I was an English major, again, focused on storytelling. I wanted to be a writer, an editor. And I got really attracted to... Um, the, the stage. I directed a play when I was a freshman, which was a bizarre thing I had never done before, but decided to just, why not, you know, just try it. So um, I directed a play all by myself. And uh, and I loved that as a new kind of storytelling. And through that, I, m- I met one of my dearest friends, um, Matt Patches, who was like, you know what, you should you should try the film program at NYU. He was a film student and um, he knew what a geek I was for movies. And I I looked into it and I transferred to Tish, which is the film program at NYU. And so that was the kind of storytelling I did for a long time. I wanted to be a director and I thought that I would be. And I realized, unfortunately, what a sexist industry that is. Tell me about it. (laughs) Did you you not even bother entering it because you saw the landscape of like male directors versus female or? There were basically, there was no... Catherine Bigelow, when I was in school, there just wasn't that kind of a role model. But it's also, I'm a very practical person, and I started to think about this thing that no one teaches you in college, that I wish everyone taught in college, which is the lifestyle that comes with the career that you're choosing right? It's just when you're in college, it's all about like, this is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. You're not thinking about the fact that in film, you're working 18-hour days on a project-by-project basis, which means you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from. You're not getting health insurance. And I am a very detail-oriented Virgo who needs structure in my life. And so I knew that film, while a great love of mine always, and it's come full circle. Now I work on video at Cosmo, which is really cool. Um, But I knew that, The film lifestyle wasn't right for me. And so in college, I started interning. I started at The New Yorker, and then I went to Vogue right after that, and I just fell in love. It was like the perfect combination of all of the kinds of storytelling that I I loved. Um, I also really loved, once I got to Vogue, I loved focusing on women as an audience because I felt like women were underserved. But there was also this really immensely attractive thing that was sort of the opposite of what I saw in film, where in women's media, young women had a seat at the table and higher level corporate executives, men, would listen to them and look at them like, well, she's the expert. She knows what she's talking about. And I thought that was really inspiring and unfortunately rare. And I think that more than anything is why I stuck with magazines above all else.
0: So Speaking as someone who, at the same time as a feminist, but also loved Barbie and never felt (laughs) like Barbie made me, like, I was never one of those people that, like, played with Barbies and then thought, oh, I need to look like Barbie. Like, that Mm. didn't enter, and it was a doll. I know a lot of people feel like Barbie, they needed to look like her, and it messed up their head, but... How do you feel with what you're doing at Cosmo? Like, it used to be like a magazine that was all about sex tips, and that's Mm -hmm. what I would read it for when I was 16, like all the great positions. And I'm not gonna lie, the Tantric Sex (laughs) article really shaped my 16 year old sex life. Um, How do you sort of balance that, right? And what it was known for in its legacy, Mm -hmm. and like bringing it into a modern day where women might wanna know about sex, but they also need to know about
1: money Mm -hmm. or all these other topics that are so key to us? It's really interesting in looking back at, I did a deep, deep, deep study of Cosmo's history before I took over the magazine in October and... What really struck me about it is that it was really broad. It was known for its sex tips because I think that's what people went to it for that was so that's what was so unique about it. Um and it's it's sort of sole, you know, spot in the market that no one else was in. But it covered food and it covered um it did talk about career and I read a lot about Helen Gurley Brown, the founding editor of the Cosmos. We know it now. And she, her big goal was to help young women get out there and chase their dreams. What's interesting to me is that now on this side of things, I feel like the woman I'm speaking to has done that. And the magazine that we're making is about what happens when you get there, which is really interesting. But, um, you know... My audience is 17% more diverse than the national average, so we focus a ton on diversity. That's a huge thing for me, making sure that the magazine looks and feels as nuanced as the audience does. I think also, you know, millennials and Gen Z hold their media far more accountable for representation than any other generation has. So... I've been working hard with my fantastic team to make the magazine look a lot more diverse and a lot more like the people who are reading it, because I do think that matters. I'm the same way you were. I did I did play with Barbie. I left my Barbie dream house, um, but I never thought I had to look like her. Right. Granted, neither of us look that far afield from Barbie. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that we're blonde and have those bizarre proportions, but we're, you know... Sort of in that world, and so I never felt like I was playing with something that um, was so far removed from my world. But I do, I do recognize the influence that media. Has. I think there's been a long narrative in the last 10, 15 years of um, readers and consumers calling out women's media for not being representative enough or diverse enough and not showing enough body types and, to your earlier question, not focusing on the serious issues that women really care about. I guess what I'm saying is I think women were frustrated for a long time with the perception that women's magazines made them seem fluffier and flakier than they really were, right. right? The media that we all consume now does focus on politics and it does focus on substantive issues. It's not that women now are more serious than they were then. It's just that media has caught up. Right, But serious reporting is in my background. I was a features editor um, at Teen Vogue, and that's sort of what's in my heart when it comes to journalism. And I think that's something Cosmo has a long history of doing really well and I want to lean really hard into that space as we go forward. So most people
0: who have seen Devil Wars Prada imagine (laughs) an editor-in-chief's job as that. Can you define for me, like, as an editor-in-chief, how is that different from being a features writer or Mm -hmm. different from being a market editor so that people can understand, like, what your day-to-day actually looks like and your, your role versus what the movies say? Yes.
1: And I, the funny thing is I have sort of been on both sides of that equation because I started as the assistant to the editor-in-chief at Glamour, Cindy Levy, who was such a great champion of mine and was nothing like Miranda Priestly. Um Except that she was very smart and very driven. Um, So it's funny that movie has sort of, I've lived that whole movie by now. I think once you get to be an editor-in-chief, you've kind of done a lot of the other roles that uh, work underneath you. So you have a decent understanding of what it does take to be a market editor or a features editor or a copy editor or a research director. But what's different about what I do is that I am responsible for the entire output of this brand. And what's changed so much about being an editor-in-chief from Helen's day to mine is that Helen had a magazine. She had a very big, very, very big magazine. I have a magazine and a website and a YouTube channel an Instagram, um, you know, a a Twitter, a TikTok platform, an Alexa show, a podcast, a new fragrance line. And you're responsible for all of, of it. So, like,
0: you look at every Instagram that comes out. Do you read all the captions? I do. You I approve all the TikTok videos.
1: <laughs> you know, the only way that I can survive and the only way that I think what we do is so great is that I have a team of phenomenal, mind blowingly smart, hilarious young women working for me who I trust to own it, and run with it. And so I would say that I I have my hand in every pot, but it's more supervisory. I always hated being micromanaged, and so I hate to micromanage. So Mia Lardier, our Snapchat editor, oversees our TikTok channel, and I let her do that. And I look at what's there and I give her feedback, but I, I don't... I don't like to over-control. I also think the thing about digital content is that it kind of has to be what it is endemic to the platform that it's on. Mm -hmm. And once you get too precious about it, um, I think you can hinder what makes digital content fun and great. So uh, I
0: hear, you know, obviously in in the news, it's always like the death of magazines. And now I have a lot of people in media, digital media, like it's the death of our industry. (laughs) And I'm like, well, everyone, like someone's gonna survive, right? (laughs) You seem to be diversifying, which will mm-hmm. ensure your survival. But mm-hmm. what do you see as like, as things are dying or they aren't what they were? I used to say um, when I couldn't afford to go anywhere or afford to go to Paris or anything, a friend of mine would like put everything on Uncle Cy. Like she'd like, thanks, Uncle Si. Because like those are the days, right? The private cars and the, and but, she would just pay for everything. She was like my sugar daddy, but it was really Uncle Cy's money. New Cy Newhouse? Yes. Oh. Yeah, love him. Oh, yeah, so those days are over. So where do you want to take this in this media world, which digital brands are dying, some magazines are faltering? Like, what what do you see as your
1: strength? I'm going to answer that a couple of different ways. Okay, <laughs> I do hear this narrative a lot, this whole death thing, and it's depressing. But it I is, don't because um, I still read magazines. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I have a pile. I know, me too. At my new apartment building, I just saw a huge stack of magazines getting delivered the other day, which was so exciting. You know, it's interesting. I uh, Are you familiar with the astrologist Susan Miller? Yes. She told me once that no form of media ever dies out or has ever died out. We all thought that TV would kill the radio. It didn't. We all thought texting would kill phone calls. It hasn't. And I thought that was really interesting. And I've sort of hung on hung on to that. I don't think, I really don't think print magazines will die. And there are a couple of reasons The first is that I have a theory um, that I don't think is all that crackpot of a theory. I think a couple of years from now, we're going to find ourselves as a culture in a place where we recognize that just because we can get all of our content digitally on our phones doesn't mean that we want to or that we should. I think about being a user on a phone. It's not a space I control. I'm there. I'm sort of navigating around. But then I get a text from my mom. And then I remember I have to email my sister back. And then I see in my inbox that my boss has asked me a question that I have to go. It's a very sort of frenetic space where in magazines, you can't get a push notification, you know? Totally. And I do think that I'm going to put, I'm on the record right now putting money down saying that in five years, in a restaurant in New York City, if you have your cell phone out on the table like we both do right now, that's going to be as declassé as if you light a cigarette. I really think that that we're headed for that. That I there will that. be, I hope so, right? That we're, that there will be a world in which there are cell phone blocked areas. We're we're talking about a concept related to that right now at work. So I think for that reason. We, as a culture that's very wellness aware, uh, will get to a place where we feel like it's it is restorative and recuperative to not read on the phone sometimes and to choose instead to read a physical thing. And I think that's that's really important. Um, I also think that there are certain certain kinds of stories that print magazines do, do even better than digital. And this is where I struggle against myself because I'm working for all platforms. But we did a story recently called How to Go to Rehab about how most of the young addicts in this country, most of the addicts in general in this country will never get help, which is a crisis. And the rehab piece of the, you know, opioid epidemic is not is not what gets really talked about. And so we as a staff discussed what a critical need that was for our reader and how impactful it could be for a girl who is reading Cosmo for fun, reading it for the sex tips, for the great fashion, for the beauty, for the astrology section, for her to stumble upon a story that destigmatizes rehab for her and makes it seem like a less terrifying concept, if we can impact readers that way, that seemed really important, right? That Telling that story online is difficult. We've done it. We've put the story online. But it's harder to navigate a concept that has a ton of different, a wheel that has a ton of different spokes. It's hard to do that online in the same way that you can do in print. So I do think there are certain things that print magazines just do better Yeah, and always will. I
0: like in your story of the phones on the table, like we're consuming, right? Our phones because we're digital, we're the digitally native, whatever's <laughs> like kids on Halloween, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you eat so much of it. You're yes. sick to your yes. stomach. And then you're like, all right, just one, one a day. Yes. I'm good after the, like, I make myself want to throw up. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, and if you look at what Apple's doing with their screen time monitoring. I had lunch not long ago with um, Tim Cook, who came to Hearst and was talking about how he... Did you have lunch like you and him just you and Tim? Me and the and a couple of the other editor, editors in chief. Wow. Yes, we we all tried very hard not to call him Tim Apple, but when someone did, he he laughed heartily. But he talked about how he feels like if people are on his devices all the time, he's failed. Right. Um because they're meant to empower your engagement with the world around you. And I believe in that, and I think I think the whole restorative thing will become a really important component of self-care. Totally. Yeah. So a lot of the women
0: that I interview have encountered, whether it's a glass ceiling or uh, being held down or, and I'm not trying to make the podcast only be about that, but I've always felt that in fashion, while it is mostly women, it's a lot of women, like, kicking each other down <laughs> or like throwing each other under the bus or in full transparency, like me yelling at the leading fashion membership organization saying you've nominated the same women for several years in, the ro- in a row and there's like two and you've given the award to the same fucking men over <laughs> and over again. Like why do you have a woman at the head of this who's mm-hmm. not empowering more women mm-hmm. um, or supporting them? So what do you think has to change about our industry and what can like listeners do to like make sure that the other women in the room are, are brought along for the ride?
1: It's so interesting. I, I feel like in a certain way, we work in, in close adjacent, but maybe not the same industry because yep. magazine media really is run by women mm-hmm. almost entirely. I actually realized at a certain point recently that I have never really reported directly to a man when Me Too exploded onto the scene. I realized how lucky I was that women were always who I was surrounded by in the workplace, and that's who I learned from. I do feel like early on, it certainly felt like a bit more of a, a barbed, Ambitious kind of place where we all had to jockey because what is similar about your industry and my industry is that there are so few positions, so few opportunities, but so many women, so many people who are interested in them. Correct. So I think the competitive nature of our work makes it a little bit less, how shall we say, hospitable to general kindness towards each other, right? Like competing brings out your worst sometimes. So I would say more opportunities in general will help. It's hard to do that in industries like ours that are continuing to get more efficient and have to get more efficient. But I think not feeling like Another woman in the room means that there's one less spot for you is key. I hope that's not the way anybody who's listening feels anymore. It has, you know, I have felt like that at certain points in my career. And I certainly hope that your listeners don't have to deal with that. So what is the best part of your job and the worst part of your job? Ooh, this is going to sound cheesy. It's hard to nail down a best part because I love so much of it. It is so fun. I am having so much fucking fun. That's awesome. It's the most fun. And it's cool to see when people ask me what I do and I tell them I work at Cosmo, their eyes light up because everyone knows Cosmo. They all know a different kind of Cosmo, but everybody knows Cosmo. Mm -hmm. And they're as excited about it as I am, which is really cool. But I think right now the best part of my job is being able to come up with big, exciting ideas that haven't been done before that maybe aren't in the mode of traditional magazine publishing. You mentioned earlier that we're diversifying to invest in our future. Mm -hmm. And that really is what we're doing. So we're thinking of events. I just had an event idea this morning I'm excited about. We're thinking about products. We're thinking about brand extensions that aren't us stretching Cosmo thin for the sake of like getting it out there but are but are what is the power of this brand and how can we leverage that power in a new place that will offer benefit to our not just reader but our our consumer our girl that's really exciting to me to to flex a lot of different muscles you can tell from my background too that i i like to do a lot of different things and i i think my career has been marked at this at least by now at this point by adapting and taking the sort of central skills of storytelling and reaching an audience and evoking an emotion um, and doing that in a lot of different ways, depending on on where I am at the particular time and teaching myself in certain ways how to do that. So being in a place now where I can flex all kinds of different muscles at the same time is really sick. And also, I love managing. I, I love being a manager. I love having, I have this inspiring staff of millennial and Gen Z women who are so cool and confident, and they have such great ideas. And so I, I love being a manager, and I love, um, I also love to edit. So it's it's amazing to be in a position where I can do all of that and where I can sort of choose, okay, today I'm going to spend my time doing this. Um, the magazine schedule is, is pretty demanding. so It's not, 24-7, right? Ooh, yeah, um, it really is. But, um, but being able to sort of guide where I put my focus based on what the needs are, that's really cool. My least favorite part of my job? I probably, I don't get as much sleep as I probably should. Um, My staff knows this about me, unfortunately, because I am the horrible person who sends the like 3 a.m. emails. Yes, Um, They all know, I hope, hey guys, if you're listening, (laughs) please make sure you know this. Um, They all know not to respond to me. uh, But you have to get it out of your system. I get it. Yeah. I wish there were better like email scheduling tools in this world or slack scheduling tools because I have to do it when I'm thinking about it or when I have time. But um, that's probably, and that's something I'm working on, time management, drawing boundaries, finding ways to take care of myself as a person as much as I take take care of myself as a as a professional. And I think at this stage, I'm starting to, I'm about to turn 33. (laughs) You are so young. (laughs) Oh my God. I'm starting to, at this age, I'm starting to realize that me being a powerful, effective professional is almost as much about me being a healthy, happy person that like having fun in my normal life is a valuable thing for me to come and bring back to my work. My tendency is to pour it all into the job. And as I go, I'm realizing that pouring some of it into myself, um, is really important all around. Totally. That's why I fantasize about the vacation I'm going to take to do that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I haven't oh, planned it yet, but it's same. Yeah. I never take time off. I'm horrible about that.
0: Yeah. I've started forcing myself to just because I have to like feel rejuvenated. Otherwise, I just get like angry. Yes. And bitter. Yes. So I have two questions I like to ask all my guests, probably been prepared for this. But um, what is one thing we'd be surprised to know about you? I cut my own hair. Oh. I
1: know. That's good. Your hair looks great. I was already, I was looking at it before. I was like, oh, I never cut. Thank you. It's I do it partially because I am a Virgo, so I'm a I am a control freak. But um, when I was in college, my mom took me to um, Vidal Sassoon, and she said, "Let's let's get you a fun haircut." And I told them, "Do whatever you want," and I meant it. So they took me from like waist long, you know, ballerina hair. You yeah. have to put it up in a bun. Um, they gave me a pixie, and I loved it. But holy shit, that's hard to maintain. And I didn't, as a college student, I did not have Vidal Sassoon maintenance money. So I started just cutting it myself with a pair of manicure scissors. I still use that same pair of scissors. And it has probably saved me like a lot of money over the years. Nice. So, yes. And uh, the other last question I like to ask is what is one piece of advice either you
0: come up with on your own that you can share or that someone gave to you that was really valuable?
1: I had to learn this the hard way, and it's a lesson that I'm constantly reminding myself. But the my my focus on perfectionism, my my insistence that I be perfect, um, I think is has backfired in so many ways and has held me back and as soon as I started to realize a couple of years ago maybe two years ago that not only focusing on being perfect but focusing on making sure that everyone around me that my boss and that her boss and that you know this other boss over there that they all felt like I was the perfect employee um it it meant that I I was sort of stressing a lot about the emotional states of other people and um maybe not always doing my best work because I was focused on doing the perfect work. And I know now that there is no such thing as the perfect work. And there is no such thing as the perfect employee, which sounds obvious probably, but um, was earth shattering once I realized it. And when I started to shed that, which again, I'm still, I'm still peeling off those layers. But when I started to do that, then I started to be brave and bold and to take risks and I started to get more satisfaction out of my own work, my own ideas. I believed in my own ideas more because I was less focused on measuring them against what I now realize was some imaginary, you know, rubric. Um, so dropping the perfectionism, it's its hard, but I think that's really changed my life. That's
0: amazing. I love that. Thanks.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much for having me. Yeah, this of was course. fun. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. That was Jessica Pels. To find out more about what she's up to at Cosmo, you can follow at Cosmopolitan.